0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Pritzker Forum on Global Cities starts today and runs through Friday. The Chicago Council on Global Affairs created the event to talk about the challenges of urban living today and the many innovative solutions that cities can bring forth. Morning Shift broadcast from the Global Cities Forum tomorrow and will be there on Friday. And today we're going to talk about talk with several people who are here for the forum. And first, we are going to talk with someone who has governed in a real-life big city. Michael A. Nutter is former mayor of Philadelphia. He is past president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And since leaving office in 2016, Nutter's been a member of the Homeland Security Advisory Council. Thanks for joining us, Mayor Nutter.
1: Jerome, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: What do you think the biggest challenge is facing cities today? Because there seems to be so many of them.
1: Well, they are. Cities are very complex uh, organizations. Uh, I refer to them as uh, often uh, living, breathing uh, organisms. Uh, they have a mood and an attitude, uh, and they're dynamic. Um, they are often resistant to change, uh, but innovating all the time. That's uh, obviously a little bit of a contradiction there uh, to some extent. Um, Many of the issues are localized, uh, and first because we're here in Chicago, I certainly want to, uh, give a big, uh, shout out and congratulations and, uh, best of best wishes uh to uh to mayor lightfoot uh congratulate her on her her win i uh, she think she's been in office for 15 days, yep, days. <laughs> you know uh i, re- I remember that time uh, but uh certainly wish her well running you know third largest city in america one of the true global cities uh in the world um you know public safety issues infrastructure educating kids um, you know, getting people jobs, economic opportunity, innovation. I mean, these are the day-to-day issues that mayors all across the country and around the world You know, it's have interesting to, to see
0: Mayor Lightfoot come in here, and there is a lot of optimism and positive mm-hmm. thinking. Yeah. And I, re- I can remember when Rahm Emanuel came in office mm-hmm. eight years ago, and he was like, this is the greatest job in the world. I always wanted this yeah. job because you can get things done. Yeah. We can make changes. You can sure. be hands-on. And then uh, um, all sorts of stuff happens, yeah. and it almost seems like an un, unmanageable job that you cannot—it's really hard to um, succeed at.
1: Well, let me say this: uh, first, I wrote a book uh, came out a couple of years ago. Uh, the title, which is uh, "Mayor," the best job in politics, uh, and I absolutely believe that it is a get stuff done job. Uh, you can see the impact of your work. As I mentioned earlier, it is a complicated uh, kind of thing. And as uh, you know, philosopher uh, Mike Tyson once said, uh, "You know, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face." Um, you know, running a campaign, being successful is one thing; uh, making that transition. To governing. Uh, You talked about a few things on the campaign trail. Now you have to translate those into uh, public policy, maybe legislation, and then the real world uh, comes upon you. Uh, There are, what, 50 aldermen uh, here in the city of Chicago? Uh, They probably have some ideas and thoughts uh, of their own. And so uh, you come off of that big win and the campaign trail and now you end up in city hall uh it's a very different kind of place and as much as any of us know as candidates uh you don't really start to understand the magnitude of the job of the job until you sit in that seat uh sit in that office behind that desk uh, and the magnitude of the flurry of information decision making documents uh triumph, tragedy. Uh, People do things. Uh, They don't always act the way you want them to. Uh, You can actually accomplish a lot of things as mayor of any city in the United States and around the world. Um, It may be a slightly slower pace than you want. Uh, Often people don't cooperate. That's called people and politics and personalities. Uh, But um, there's no question uh, that Mayor Lightfoot uh, now and Mayor Emanuel before, uh, certainly, uh, I'm sure, not only took on challenges, but accomplished many of the things that they wanted to.
0: You were known for having good statistics on crime that went down. Yeah. And this was during, in your tenure was like during the period after the Great Recession. It was
1: during the recession.
0: So yeah. how, how, do you have any advice about that? How do, how do you do that?
1: Um, so uh, I guess a couple of things. Uh, and every city, again, is, is, is different. Um, but the first thing I'm going to say is uh, Chicago uh, has had two straight years of significant reductions in homicides and shootings. Um, and when I checked about a month or so ago, uh was on pace to have uh, another uh, reduction uh, so far for, for 2019. So, you know, uh, third year of reduction, that starts to become a bit of a trend. And those are certainly good signs. And, uh, you know, I'm, I know that Mayor Lightfoot cares about uh, that issue uh, as well. Um, we were fortunate in Philadelphia. I had a really great police commissioner. I think he... Uh, Chuck Ramsey, uh, who's a Chicagoan, started his police career here in Chicago as a cadet, 18 years old, uh, then headed up uh, DC, uh, Washington, D.C. police, and then to Philadelphia. Um, foot patrol, community policing, active engagement with citizens, community-based organizations. I looked at uh, reentry, helping returning citizens as a part of a crime reduction uh, strategy, helping uh, mostly young men, but certainly women, get jobs, uh, get off of those corners, get out of that that neighborhood dangerous uh, environment uh, and do something else. And so uh, that was uh, certainly some of the success uh, in Philadelphia. We were very aggressive going after illegal weapons uh, that uh, that people were carrying. Uh, as I often say, it's really hard to shoot somebody if you don't have a gun. Uh, and so um, there are a lot of techniques and strategies, and I'm sure uh, Superintendent Johnson and, and uh, Mayor Lightfoot uh, will pursue those as well.
0: What do you make of the uh, tension between having good security and having uh, excessive surveillance? There seems to be a lot of cities that go in for cameras i mean london was the big pioneer in this but now you know chicago's got a billion cameras and uh some
1: maybe not a billion but
0: some uh, some uh cities like san francisco that they just uh decided they are not going to go in for facial recognition we don't want to go that far some there's so there's some pushback on red light cameras all sorts of things sure Uh, how do you feel about that tension
1: well uh we have all the things that you mentioned, we ramped up our outdoor video surveillance uh, camera operation, uh, merged it into a fusion center and a real-time crime center, so we could see what's going on in a lot of places. Um, you know, uh, the does, government- that,
0: did, does that work? Because it didn't pop up when you listed all the things that work. It does more surveillance really reduce crime. It
1: it it, it certainly helps, um, either on the prevention side and certainly on the solving. Uh, side. Um, You know, I I didn't mention the vast array of things uh, that we did, but we absolutely increased our network as well as had a a camera program that allowed private businesses that had cameras uh, to join a program with the city of Philadelphia so that if something happened when the officers are out and they see a camera at a business, that might be one of the private businesses that has registered their camera with us and gives us access to that video footage. I'll point out one thing. The best image of the Boston bombers came from a camera in Macy's, a private sector camera, but it had the best image and allowed the police and law enforcement to capture those two individuals. So, you know, there, you know if you're walking down the street, uh, there are any number of cameras up on a pole at a business. When you go to an ATM machine, there's a camera in that machine for your protection and to see what else is going on around you. So, you know, I think uh, part of this is, I mean, you know, there is a line between, you know, uh, being safe and, um, you know, uh, the government being overly involved. Uh, I think that line continues to move from time to time. You know, um, an agency was created as a result of 9-11 that didn't exist, uh, TSA. Uh, we now, you know, feel like at times we take off all, almost all of our clothes. Uh, we get into a machine that, you know, whirls around you. And, you know, we want to be safe. Uh, and I think as long as Uh, laws are not broken and constitutional rights are recognized. Um, you know, the threats continue. Uh, they're not only local, they're, they're national and international. Uh, and I think people are willing to give up some part, uh, of their privacy in order to be safe.
0: Is there a solution out there that you're optimistic about for cities? I know when um, Columbia developed bus rapid transit, it it became like a thing that was adopted all over the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there something like that out there that you see on the horizon?
1: Um, I think, um, you know, if if you will, I mean, I don't consider myself a futurist, but I do look to the future. You know, I think that the advent of uh, 5G, uh, technology um, uh, autonomous vehicles data communication the ability to upload download at you know speeds that we have not uh, experienced uh, in the past um, you know there happens to be a great company that has an office uh you know here in chicago uh mobility uh is in that space i think that the ability to continue to communicate locally regionally nationally internationally at rapid speed uh will continue to revolutionize uh the world uh in which we live and um you know technology is not a fad it's not um it's not um how do i say it it's a tool Um, but it continues to rapidly evolve uh, and will allow us to do things that we hadn't even thought of uh, maybe five years ago.
0: Michael Nutter is former mayor of Philadelphia. He is past president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors and is in town for the Pritzker Forum on Global Cities. It starts today and runs through Friday. Thanks a lot for joining us. Nice meeting you.
1: Thanks for having me, and uh, this is going to be a great forum. Thanks.
0: Coming up after the break, we are going to chat about climate change with one of the lead authors of the recent IPCC climate report, and uh, he did the summary for urban policymakers. Stay tuned. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEC. is worldview on wbez i'm jerome mcdonald the pritzker forum on global cities starts today and the chicago council on global affairs produces the event that runs through friday we're talking about with some of the participants today and next we're going to talk about climate change with Aramar Ravi. he is the founding director of the indian institute for human settlements thanks a lot for joining us wonderful to be with you here today i wonder if you could describe uh what you've been doing with the United Nations, because you've been involved um, with the UN Global Assessment on Risk Reduction for 10 years. You've also been involved with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report and the recommendations for uh, cities
2: and implementations. Uh, Tell us a little about what what you're doing there. So we're trying to connect the dots between everyday life of people across the world, which is what sustainable development is, is about. It's about jobs. It's about healthcare. It's about education. It's about great places to live in, which is what cities are in some senses. Uh, and the big risks, climate being probably the most significant one. Uh, in other places, it's earthquakes. It's firestorms. It's, you know, some cases like in Fukushima, it's uh, tsunamis which create nuclear accidents. So we're trying to make the connection between those things. And, you know, you need a global framework to deal with it, but you need lots of local action. So cities are the place where much of this local action is happening, whether it's in the United States, Europe, uh, in my country of India, in Africa. That's where the cutting edge of of change is.
0: What are the kind of ideas that, you think should be implemented right now? Because it seems like we've ha- got to implement things fast.
2: But we have it, to implement things well. I, I would say, at least as far as climate is concerned, we have about 20 years to make a significant change. The way that we try and put it is, we have 4,000 days to make a change in 5,000 places. So you have to turn around a place, you know, almost every day. And a place is a place like Chicago, a, a city of, you know, a couple of million people. You've got to transform it. So that, you know, first, first of all, everybody has, has to have jobs, have, has to have proper livelihoods. Uh, because unless you actually create the economic base for these changes, they don't happen. Uh, you have to transform the entire energy systems. So imagine, you know, everything going electric. Uh, if you if you think about 100 years ago and think about London, Chicago, New York, etc., they were full of, of horse, car, you know, horse carriages and, you know, a lot of stuff on the ground, which you didn't want to talk about. Today, they're full of cars and they're putting stuff into the air. Uh, we're going to move to an electric future, which is going to look very different from the way things are today, and that's that's going to make life both interesting and, and and deeply challenging at the same time. Can you give me an example
0: in with both jobs and electric future of a city that is doing a good job at that? Is there a city that is? Of creating jobs
2: with uh, renewable green energy and, and sustainable solutions? I think the, the cities that are doing the most in this are in Northern Europe at the moment. So if you look at the index, sustainability index that we're just producing for Europe, you have Oslo at the top followed by Stockholm, you know, a whole range of Northern European cities. So uh, stop, Stockholm and Copenhagen are very interesting, interesting examples because they transformed the economies. Uh, to deal with a whole range of new industries, but they're also production centers. So they have, if, if you look at the skyline, you can see the wind turbines, and on top of houses, you can see PV systems. Uh, many of these places are now moving very quickly to be at least two-thirds, if not three-fourths, uh, fueled by, uh, by uh, renewable energy. And when your production systems shift to that, your cars, your houses, uh, your transit systems move to green energy, uh, then you create a, a lot of new jobs these are kind of, kind of new industries that are emerging across the world in 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 my country, for example, we now have things that were unimaginable maybe five or six years ago uh, one gigawatt um, photovoltaic you know plants there square kilometers of photo photo photovoltaics which are actually generating a lot of new jobs not only at the production sites but you know as as you bring these things inside uh, urban areas or you change production systems it's uh, it's it's a it's a new world out there so when you hear about something like the
0: green new deal that sounds uh, accurate to you that is something that uh, is talks about jobs and talks about uh, you know changing our
2: energy consumption I think that 's absolutely central, and if the OECD economies, of which the u you s know, is a significant part of part of the G7 or G20, if they don 't transform themselves uh, it 's not only going to be challenging for the rest of the world it 's also going to be challenging I think for, for, for these countries, uh, because you know the center of the world economy has shifted a long time ago it 's shifted to other countries, and you know China is doing remarkable things in terms of of, of green energy. Uh, it was a country that invested tremendously in building, you know, multiple coal-fired power plants uh, over the 90s and the 2000s, but the rate at which they've been taken down and they're adding new photovoltaic capacity, I would, I would imagine that they might actually achieve their own targets uh, much faster than other parts of the world. So if you're not on this sort of, uh, on this train, uh, then you're at considerable risk of actually being, uh, being, being, being left behind.
0: I'm talking with Rmo Revy. He is the founding director of the Indian Institute for Human Settlements at the United Nations. He works regularly on the UN Global Assessment Report on Risk Reduction, and he was also the coordinating lead author for the inter, um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Changes, Summary for Urban Policymakers, and we're talking about some of that work. I, you know, here in the United States, we're, we have a, a president who is over in England now, and he made a group of statements about climate change recently and he was on Piers Morgan and he described his conversations with Prince Charles and it was the usual word word salad of mixing climate change with clean air and clean water and the, the usual things he does what are we to make of uh, this what, how, what do you think about this when you see the
2: President of the United States doing this thing? The facts are very clear 25 years ago when we went to Rio uh the world was at one degree above the pre industrial. We've wasted 25 years. We're at one point, you, know, you know, we're oh, sorry, we, we were at 0.5, we're at one degree at the moment. We will hit 1.5, uh, I guess, in the next 20, 25 years if we actually don't change anything. But emissions are increasing at the current point of time. So, what does that mean? That means that basically by the mid 2030s, or if not earlier than that, we will have an overshoot. And an overshoot beyond 1.5 is actually unimaginable. When we produced this report in, uh, you know, the best scientific report in this space in 2014, uh, a two-degree world was in some senses unimaginable. We looked at New York, we looked at London, we looked at uh, cities like Dar es Salaam and Durban. And the difference between a rich city like, let's say, London and New York and Dar es Salaam is only 10 years. Because once your ecosystem services start collapsing, basically, you have no water. You don't actually have adequate access to food You can't do much about it. So you may be very rich, you may have a fantastic number of systems, but that's not going to help you. Because cities don't produce their own food, they don't produce their own water. And, you know, they count on everybody else to clean up the air around it if they they, uh, produce uh, an awful amount of pollution. So we have to transform the way that we actually run and manage our urban systems. Well, Well, I mean, our president and certainly
0: other political figures across the spectrum, they're Products of um, fossil fuel resistance uh, anybody who puts up a carbon tax gets uh, some pushback you know, it's happened in australia it's happened in lots of places uh, how do you How do you change the political equation i mean why why doesn't you know if you want to do all these things, how do you get people to
2: uh, buy into that? I think a lot of people across lots of the world have have more than bought into it. they're actually victims of this process. You know the the impact of of climate is being felt in places across the world. I mean, you have to look at your cities to understand this. Starting with you know Katrina and then Sandy and a whole range of other processes. These are real things that are experienced by by real people, and they're going to get in more intense and they're going to get worse. The challenge for us is to be able to deal with those impacts. The impacts are here. We have uh, unassailable evidence that the impacts are here. Uh, And it's not only a few people, you know, pretty much everybody in the world. This is a process that's going to affect 8 billion people in their everyday lives. Um, And we have an option of actually making significant shifts in our energy systems, in our lifestyles, because that's something that people don't talk about. You know, the question of what is enough is a very critical question. And unless you're able to address that question... Uh, You know, technical fixes will not do all of this. That's what I was talking about when I was talking about a 1.5 overshoot. Once you go beyond 1.5 and you go into a very dangerous space, the only way to address it technically is by taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. We actually don't know how to do this excepting for planting or replanting, you know, millions of acres in the Amazon.
0: You talked about growth, and you know, if too much, you know, what is too much? You know, I had Amory Lovins on the other day. He's from the Rocky Mountain Institute. I know he, Amory for a long while, and he believes we can have growth and clean the uh, clean everything up. And uh, is that realistic in your mind? Uh, can we keep growing economies at the rate we are growing um, our economies?
2: Well, I think the question is whether the global economy can continue at, this, at, at, at significant rates of growth for a long period of time. Uh, and, you know, how, how that will deal with jobs is probably the most critical question. So you can create new jobs without having runaway growth. The thing is, how do you de-link consumption? I mean, you know, you, you can actually have a better life. Uh, you can have uh, better quality what, what you have, education, healthcare, care, et cetera, et cetera, without having a society that, that, that consumes uh, you know, more and more. So I think the question of delinking um, e- energy intensity, how much energy you use every day uh, from growth and how much jobs you create is, is really the thing that, that, that we have to look for. And in many parts of the world, and I would say in, in the bulk of the world, the critical question is you have to have growth to address questions of poverty. Uh, both energy poverty and income poverty. So that will, that will remain for a while. The question is, can you actually leapfrog to use renewable energy to make that possible so that you don't have to put out a whole lot of carbon into the atmosphere so that you don't have to experience this, the kind of challenges that we have in, 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 let's say, in China and India in terms of air quality. So you can do that. Uh, But you've got to make hard choices. You've got to change your combustion systems for your your cars. You've got to make cities that are uh, denser and more compact where people can actually walk. And that's good for them because it improves their health in some senses. And in our parts of the world, um, you know, half the people walk to work in any case because they can't afford uh, mass transit.
0: I wanted to ask you a few questions about displacement in cities. And obviously we've seen and our next guest is going to be from Greece and we're going to be talking about uh, displacement and uh, how it's affected uh, his city of Athens. But uh, this is something if climate change is coming, we're, we're going to see more displacement of people in inside of countries and between countries. And, uh, you know, people talk about the equator becoming very difficult to inhabit, and people moving away from the equators. Uh, what What are you thinking cities will look like in in the future
2: as displacement uh, creates something different? Well, the first thing is a lot of us, and increasingly, I would say half the world's population live very close to the water. In some cases, it's the sea; in other cases, it's rivers. Um. What we're going to be seeing is, and this, this is an analogy that I gave in, in Buenos Aires last year at the, at the U20, uh, G20 meeting, and that is if a mayor has to actually think about moving the shorefront of their city back by, you know, a mile or so every few years, what would that city look like? So in some senses, cities are our greatest stranded assets. It's not the coal-fired power plants and the jobs that are tied to that. It is our urban areas. Because we've situated them in places where water is available, where a whole range of services are actually good, you know, people can live a good life. But that's going to change very dramatically. And I'm talking about before sea level rise is actually going to hit us significantly. So we really have to rethink uh, how uh, we live and how we organize ourselves. So the displacement is going to happen within cities and in many parts of the world where people have no livelihoods. And this is, you know, an example that we give for, uh, parts of China, countries like Bangladesh, there are already tens of millions of people who no longer are able to live in the locations where they currently are uh, because they're untenable to live there. They may not actually have gone beyond below water at the moment, uh, but because there are storms that come every year and they're becoming more intense, because there's seawater intrusion taking place, you can't actually grow things there, so you have to move. Uh, so we have to look at, at cities as a great opportunity, but we have to be cognizant that they actually concentrate these risks. So we have to think ahead and actually reorganize them and, and and rework them so that they become more equitable and more sustainable.
0: I'm talking with Aramar Rivi. He is the founding director of the Indian Institute on Human Settlements. He's been working with the United Nations on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the UN Global Assessment Report on Risk Reduction. And he's here for the Pritzker Forum on Global Cities that starts today. Um, I was combing through your Twitter feed, and you had a clip of Antonio Gutierrez, the UN Secretary General, and it seems like people don't really hear him talking enough about climate change, because he is very outspoken and uh, really is providing some significant leadership on this. And I thought I'd play a clip of Antonio Gutierrez on climate change. This is him at Davos. Climate change
1: is running fast. But the international community is not doing enough. And the political will is not there to do everything that is needed. We still do not have carbon pricing as much as we should have. We still are subsidizing fossil fuels. That, I mean,
3: technologies on our side. Mm-hmm. Renewable energy now is more competitive than fossil fuels, but yeah, governments are still, many of them, subsidizing fossil fuels. We need to run faster. We need to make sure to understand that if the temperature rise more than 1.5 degrees in the end of the century, we'll face a catastrophic situation.
0: Here's the head of the United Nations saying we need the political will to run faster. And there seems to be much more voter interest in the United States in climate change. In, in other places, it seems um, even higher. You are mentioning uh, Northern Europe. And I was reading a article about copenhagen and um and how denmark's doing in the elections and they're they're running climate change is the most significant issue in the election for like 65 percent of the electorate um do you feel something going on with uh what is happening with the the issue of climate change and people who
2: vote and and getting leaders to do more of course and you know there are countries in the world in which it's not not so obvious that people vote on this like china uh, but there is a strong movement towards making a significant change. Uh, so, in some senses, the fossil era is over. Uh, and I think it, the quicker that countries and 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 sort of firms realize that, um, it won't be over tomorrow morning. It, it might take a decade or so to go. But it's it's like uh, you know driving uh, carriages with 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 horses. Uh, I mean, it's fun, and rich people can do it at the moment, and it's you know, it's a curiosity in some parts of the world. But that's not the way the world is actually going to go forward, both economically and certainly uh, environmentally. So that shift is happening just now. And I think the people who are at the cutting edge of that process are not only going to be innovators and help improve their lives and save the planet, but they're actually going to create a, a completely new economy and a new way of doing things. And it's, it's everything. It's you know from the lighting that you have to the kind of devices that you use um, to you know, what kind of transportation that you, you take. Uh, this, this shift is, is 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 real, and it's it's very simple. It's happening in some places because it's much cheaper than anything else. Uh, it's cheaper in in, in India um, and in some parts uh, of, of other parts of the world to actually take uh, electricity out of a solar PV uh, source than it is for to, to burn coal. The challenge is that we have a whole economy that's based on it. It takes time to transition, uh, but it's uh, it's 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 already there.
0: What do you do about oil states like Saudi Arabia, like Canada like uh, Venezuela there's all sorts of them whose
2: uh, nation state depends on oil revenue that 's a fundamental question, and I think you know th- these countries really are very aware of it uh, so for example, saudi arabia is 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 trying to transform its economy to be able to get off its oil dependency. Uh, this will not be easy for them to actually do it, but um, like many other countries that have that, that have made this transition before, uh, they're, they're they're working very hard at making that happen. But the point is, we have to recognize that this is like any other dependency. It's like you know, dependency on on, on cocaine. Uh, it takes time and it's a lot of effort to, to 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 get off it. But you know, to for your survival, you have to, to to make that happen. You've got to change the economic structure. You've got to change the way people think about the work that they have. Um, and uh, if there are not going to be too many people who are going to be buying this stuff, not now, but let's say 10 or 15 years from now, uh, then you're obviously going to make a shift. That's what diversification of the Gulf economies have, have actually uh, done. Um, some people will fight it. We've fought wars before on this question. But, um, uh, you know, if you, if you look sensibly at, at, at a planet where uh, you're going to have somewhere between 8.5 and 10 billion people this is not one question that we should actually be having a disagreement about. We have to fix it together. It has to happen in at least five or 10,000 places, which means local action is going to carry the day. And you're seeing that across the world, whether it's in, in Northern Europe, you know, young people like Greta Thunberg going and pushing this process or the lead that's been given inside the United States by, by mayors and cities. Uh, this is a, a grassroots process for, for change. Uh, it's like the end of slavery in some senses. Uh, it's tough. Uh, and in this country, I think you know you had a really big fisticuff around this question. Yep. <laughs> uh, but at the end of the day, that that change that change was made.
0: Aramarevi is the founding director of the Indian Institute for Human Settlements. He's been working on the UN Global Assessment Report on Risk Reduction, and he was the coordinating lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Changes Summary for Urban Policymakers. He's here for the Pritzker Forum on Global Cities that starts today. Thanks a lot for joining us, and good luck in the future. Thanks so much for being Coming up after the break, we'll talk about Greece and some of the immigrants coming to Athens. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and today we're talking with some of the participants in the Pritzker Forum on Global Cities. It starts today at Fulton Market, and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs produces the event. It runs through Friday. And we're joined now by uh, Lefteris Papayanakis and he is the vice mayor on migrant and refugee affairs for Athens, Greece. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. Um, First of all, your job as the vice mayor for Migrant and Refugee Affairs probably didn't uh, uh, wasn't there a few years ago. And how did it get started? In, I mean, obviously, Greece has it had this uh, gigantic issue with migrants. Um, what happened? Uh, it's the first time that a
3: city in, uh, in Greece has a vice mayor on migrants and refugees. Uh, it's not the first time that we deal with migrants, but it's the first time that a mayor decided to, you know, Put so high up in the agenda this issue uh, because of the 2015, of course, reality that we faced, um, and we decided that this is too important for the city to let go and just point fingers at the state. Uh, and that's why the mayor of Athens, the former mayor of Athens, uh, decided to have a vice mayor on on these issues.
0: How many of the uh, asylum seekers have come to Athens? Because most people, I think, probably think, oh, they're in Lesbos. They're 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 yeah. they're.
3: Mostly, almost all of them passed through Athens at some point. The 1.5 million people who came into Greece, 85% passed through Athens, but also from the port and the north of Greece, moving on uh, usually to Germany. Uh, And now we have 80,000 in the the mainland. Uh, No, 80,000 in the whole of Greece, um, 60,000 in the mainland, and then 20,000 in the islands, give or take. And we have in the municipality of Athens... 18,000, which is not a lot uh, as a number. It is important for a city that is not prepared to, to work on these issues, but it's also valid for the country, but also for Europe. If you, if we expand the, the discussion, this is the reality of Europe also.
0: Where do the 18,000 people live?
3: In neighborhoods of Athens, uh, in a camp that we have, that we co-manage with the Ministry of Migration, uh, in squats, because this is the reality of the city. And some of them live independently and we don't know exactly where they are uh, because, you know, they found ways to sustain themselves. So this is very interesting as a as a reality for
0: the city. Well, how do you go about trying to assist them or um, work with them in, in so many different places? How do you get that done?
3: We – in the beginning, we didn't have the – capacity if you if you want to to offer services to everyone but now after 3 years i can say that we have the capacity to offer first you know the first services to everyone uh, legal support and with the help also with of uh, of ngos that are active in in the city we can cover basically most of the needs housing is a big issue I think it's not only for Athens, but it's an issue in general. But, you know, uh, school, health, um, and access to the labor market is also very difficult because we have 20% of unemployment in Greece due to the actual crisis that we are facing, the financial one. Because we are talking about the refugee crisis, I don't call it like that, I disagree. And we have an actual crisis, which is the financial one, that affects the city and the country.
0: I want to ask you about the inner Play there because it—it it almost seems like Greece is the center of all ironic policy outcomes. Uh, You—you're kind of the austerity poster child uh, for, and and all this austerity is something that is created. All this unemployment and uh, stagnant economy, and at the same time, you get this. Immigration problem dumped on you. uh, It's a difficult.
3: (laughs) It's a difficult combination. If you want, we we talk about a crisis within a crisis. If you want, like a babushka doll, you 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 take out the dolls, and there is always something in that affects you even more. Uh, But to be to be exact, I think that the financial crisis it is an, an actual crisis that has numbers, and we need to adjust to a new reality. Migration is not a crisis. You know, human mobility is part of human history. It is human history. So if we treat it like a problem or a crisis, then I think that we, you know, we get mixed up. So, um, but the combination of the two is, it's, you know, quite significant and it puts a lot of challenges for the country and the city. Uh, But Greece is the first reception country, as Italy and Spain, for example, who face similar situations um, and it's very difficult to manage. I would say we, because it's like changing the you know the changing the, the the wheel on your bike while the bike is moving. It's it's quite complicated to adjust to all these challenges in the same time. So uh, for us, it has been a very important reality, and I think that we made it out okay. I mean, in a, in a quite good way. I would I would say.
0: What's it like for the immigrants on the ground, the people who are seeking asylum in Greece? I was reading quotes from them, and they were saying, well, you know, I don't have a job, but neither does anybody else around here, neither do any of the Greek-born people uh, have jobs. Uh, yeah,
3: it is... They face the same challenges as Greeks, if you want, um, but you have to add to that that they have another identity, they're asylum seekers, and they're, for the moment, their legal status is you know, is not certain, at least, at least for the asylum seekers who didn't get uh, an answer yet, and they will have to wait probably... One two years because the system is quite slow because of the number uh, of uh, of asylum seekers. So we need to adjust also to that. But it's been proven by also by studies that the mere existence of migrants in 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 a, in a country, newly arrivals, if you want, uh, adds to the economy. You just have to wait and to try to adjust the system. I mean, you have this in the United States before fifty two percent of the new businesses come you know were created by migrants at some point. the same goes with Germany now. The first good results of migration are shown in the GDP. So you have their elements that you have to promote, and you have to adjust your policy to this new reality because this is the future. I mean cities and countries are going to face this. Constantly, it's not uh, a one thing, you know, a one off and it's it's over. I mean, the previous speaker spoke about climate change. It's going to affect migration. So you have all these elements that are going to affect migration and people moving.
0: Uh, I noticed that there was a candidate for the European Parliament that was uh, a newly minted Greek citizen of three months. And, uh, yeah.
3: Yes. What happened to the, him? He was not elected. He did well. Um, he's the president of the Forum for Refugees. Uh, He's been waiting to become Greek for 20-something years, I think, because it's a very difficult process. Don't think about the American system (laughs) or the Canadian one. It's a very difficult process. Uh, Around Europe, you know, Europe has been created based on nationalism back then in the 19th century, and these are the principles that also apply, and it's very difficult to become a citizen. It takes a lot of, especially in Greece, it takes a lot of
0: time, unfortunately. it was his candidacy some kind of uh, victory is that like uh, it was a very symbolic candidacy I have to say, but it's,
3: it, he was not the only one. We had also candidates in other uh, in other lists. There was a woman from Albania uh, who became a Greek citizen quite a year before. And we had also local uh, candidates. I mean, in the municipal councils, we had people from Africa, from the Middle East, etc., etc. So it's we're getting there. It takes a lot of time, but slowly we're getting there.
0: I was uh, you cited in a previous interview, some statistics about uh, how many people are foreign born in Athens. And I was really surprised. Uh, Trust me, Greeks were
3: also surprised. I mean, it's an official number of the Greek statistical authority. 22% of the um, citizens of Athens are foreign-born. In Berlin, it's 50%. And, and, you know, in other cities in Europe, it's also very, very high. But in Greece, we don't talk about it. It was like they first saw the number when I mentioned it. And they said that I created the number, which is not true. Uh, And I think it helps the discussion just to have uh, uh, um, a sense of the reality of the city. 22% of the Athenians are foreign-born.
0: And I had to run and look at Chicago's foreign-born statistic and it's twenty percent and we consider ourselves a a city of immigrants and uh, we, we, you know like that's part sometimes of sometimes numbers
3: give you know oh. give uh, give another picture
0: of what you have imagined I mean it's it's very helpful well uh, what what does it mean for uh, the citizens of Athens to know that I mean do they uh, take that in as a point of pride you know in Chicago it's kind of a point of pride yes we're not there yet i think in in greece in general uh it's it's
3: not that obvious you cannot see it in the city you don't see it in everyday life you have specific neighborhoods where you can see it but it's not in the how can i say it's not a very good expression but it's not in the dna of the city yet so that's why i mentioned the, the number always just to make people understand that it's not the first time that we see foreigners or others in in the city. It's something that we live since, I think, 50 years now because we have communities well established in Greece, Filipino community, African communities, Middle Eastern communities. People who work, live, their kids go to school, are born in Greece, you know, we have very good examples. You know, the most famous Greek now lives and plays basketball in the United States. Absolutely. So, yes. And he's a point of pride for us. He's not the best example of integration. In the Greek society, because you understand why, but for us it's a point of pride, and I'm very happy that you know he's
0: here, and he he's the person that he is. Um. Are there issues in Athens and outside of Athens with with hate crimes and far right groups who are, um, who are who are rustling things up? Yes, yes, we
3: have a big issue as you know in Greece we have a Nazi party who is in the in the national parliament. They are there there are also present in many municipal councils and the regional councils around Greece. And uh, they lost a lot in the European election which is a good thing and in the local elections also uh, they lost half of the of their electorate but we have attacks, hate crimes, we have assassinations and now they're on trial for being a criminal organization and we are waiting for the result before the end of 2019 and we have an observatory, I'm a part of that, the Observatory of the Trial of Golden Dawn and we're trying to communicate the reality of the trial to society and I think it's going well.
0: But tell us more about that the the trial of Golden Dawn figures or the the party itself? It's uh, it's, uh, the members of the parliamentary group who
3: are a charge of being a criminal organization, the leader of the party is the head of the criminal organization, and every member of the, and others also, of the members of the party are members of the criminal organization. That's the accusation. And you have linked to that more than 100 cases of attacks, hate crimes, etc., etc. So it's a very big, big trial. If they're convicted, what happens? Uh, it depends on the charge because we have four major charges. If they are convicted of being a criminal organization, they can go up to ten years in prison. The party, of course, is dismantled; is being deemed, uh, you know, illegal. The, I think they will find another way to create another party. But the the, the group, the leaders, will go in. They will go in prison. And this is for us. It's very important.
0: Uh, what does the trial um, mean to the Greek body politic? I mean, is this... Unfortunately, I mean, because yeah. sometimes there can be a pushback and you can get a, 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 a result you don't want. Yes. Unfortunately, um, the
3: political system doesn't follow very closely the trial. And um, one of the reasons that we use, you know, Golden Dawn, in some cases, not actual, uh, directly Golden Dawn, but this type of, of uh, it's the approach of, you know, the, the end justifies the means. And so they play, quote, yeah. um, in brackets, they play with that ideology and that party in order to use them. Uh, for their political purposes, which is never good because you don't, you don't ever play with a monster because in the, end, in the end, the monster will eat you up. So this is a dangerous game the, the, the political system played and we haven't been able to align them all together, all the, the other parties, I mean, against them even on, on, on some points of principle. So this is something that we need to ad- address um, now because the, uh, the trial be- is close to the end. You have more and more political parties you know, making statements and saying that this is a very important fight for the political system, which is interesting.
0: And uh, it's very helpful for us also. I'm talking with Lefteris Papayanakis, and he is the vice mayor on migrant and refugee affairs for Athens, Greece. And he's in town for the uh, Pritzker Forum on Global Cities that starts today and runs through Friday. Um, are, are you um, optimistic about what's going on politically with? Because uh, you're describing a situation that sounds like you know. We're trying to get a handle on this. But, you know, in our country, every time our president gets into some political trouble, he goes on to some, uh, you know, migrant bashing binge. And this is benefiting politicians uh, all throughout the developed world. That they, they, they are totally lashing out at migrants and benefiting politically from this. And I don't know if the, if you got any optimism from the European parliamentary elections, which had kind of a mixed – Picture. Yeah. I, I, do you, do you feel like this thing is still gonna work? I think that the results were better than we have
3: hoped. I mean, you have the Greens who well. got a good result, and you have green parties all around Europe going strong. Um, it is a fight. I mean, a political fight, of course. I mean, you have to find answers to that. Answers to that easy way out, because these these politicians propose the easy solutions, and they they, they, they you know they attack those who do not have a voice. A strong voice, at least. So we need to find answers to that because it's, it's the easy way out. Uh, offering easy solutions, we will stop people from moving. It is impossible to stop people from moving. It's like trying to stop water from running. I mean, it's, it's, you, know, you have to find answers to that point by point. Um, we have to see these elections, these European elections were very crucial. Things didn't go as bad as we thought, I think and we have to see also in the next five years to see at least for the next elections what the result will be and we have other critical points also national elections all around Europe um, you know, mitigated results I mean, things went well in Holland for example but we are afraid of, for France um, we have the Brexit so we have different things happening um, and uh, in the center of all of this you have in many cases migration which is not fair, I would say this is not fair because if you think about migration as part of human history, then you can see it under a different, uh, you know, scope. And it's it's interesting that people forget how we occupied Earth, how we started life, how you know where do we come from. And now I, I see I see all around the world a very big interest uh, to find out where we came from, which is also. I think you have to link it also in this context. So it is, it, is, it is a political fight. I think that it will take a bit of time and convincing. Uh, I cannot say that I'm optimistic or not. Uh, I think it's something that we have to do because this is the reality from now on. It's not something that will end in two, five, ten years. Are you, how are you feeling
0: about the European Union and its future?
3: <clears throat> I studied European law. Uh, I was born in France. Uh, I grew up in Europe. Um, And I think it's one of the best things that we have. Uh, Of course, we can discuss about the evolutions. I don't like it, for example, that we are only talking about the economy and finance, etc., etc. We are missing the political union because many people have pointed out that we have a very strong financial union, economic union, but we are missing the, the political union. And we see that every time that there is a political question. The Union fails, unfortunately, in all the major political uh, challenges, the, the European Union has failed. So we need to address this challenge and find other types of solutions. But the European Union, I think it's a good thing. And we have, we have lived 60 years in prosperity, and this is something that we have to remember. And why we have the European Union. We cannot forget why we have the European Union. How it started, when, with whom. So it's it's a big, it's a big thing.
0: Lefteris Papayanakis is the Vice Mayor on Migrant and Refugee Affairs for Athens, Greece. He's in town for the Pritzker Forum on Global Cities. It starts today at Fulton Market, and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs produced event runs through Friday. Great meeting you. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we will talk about a lawyer who was thrown off a train in South Africa on June 7th, 1893 and the world would be forever changed because that lawyer was Mahatma Gandhi. We will commemorate the 150th anniversary of Gandhi's birth and we talked with Gandhi's grandson last month and tomorrow we'll continue the discussion about Gandhi's 1st nonviolent protest action in 1893. So stay tuned for that tomorrow on Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WB Easy.